Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle, and I'm here with Coach Gabe, one of the few people in this world that gave me one of my first coaching opportunities. He's a Colombian-American, renowned tennis coach, entrepreneur, innovator, consultant, influencer, motivational speaker, and we are so lucky to have him on the Coaching Podcast. Gabe, thank you so much for being here. How are you? It is a pleasure being here. I'm doing great. Yeah, you. I love that he's got a beautiful virtual background for all of our audio listeners there in the in the uh, beautiful part of Florida, uh, with the golf course and tennis. We're going to talk about lots of those concepts uh, in just a moment. But first of all, Gabe, I have to know: Have you been to Australia and have you tried the Australian spread of Vegemite? What's your take? I haven't tried the Vegemite, though. I don't recall trying it. My wife loves it. I I don't remember, but I have many many good memories in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. The Australian Open, it's 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 certainly one of my favourite Grand Slams. I know I'm a bit biased there, but um, yeah, there's something special about the Australian Open, isn't there? I, it brings me a lot of good memories. I remember uh, one year, especially when uh, Courier won, I think it was in 1992. I've never seen anybody so focused, so he played so well during the whole tournament. I think in the whole tournament, he only lost one set, and that was in the finals against uh, Edberg. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he the level of concentration, the level of play was magnificent. Mm-hmm. When he won that tournament, it's a cute story. When he won the tournament, Akubra was one of the sponsors of the tournament. So he gave him a nice Akubra hat. But Jim didn't like the hats. And I said, well, give it to me. I put the hat on. I went to the academy with the hat. At the beginning, it was more like a like a joke. That was, I don't know how many years ago, I never took it off. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my trademark, my, my nice Akubra. Uh, Another thing that I like a lot about Australia, you know, is uh, I like Perth a lot. And I like the Windy City. I like the Black Swans. But what I remember the most is that uh, neighbors used to build tennis courts, you know, among themselves. They used to build a court for two houses, grass courts, and they play. And, and I thought that was fantastic, you know, how the neighbors could get together to build a, their own court, nice grass courts. I thought that was beautiful. So mm-hmm. now I have a beautiful, beautiful memories of us, of Australia. Yeah, and not to mention then when Jim Courier jumped in the Yarra River. I don't think anyone's jumped in the Yarra River since. But uh, but look, in, in which case, um, because your wife loves Vegemite, why don't we go, could you share with us your best coaching moment and what might be some of the lessons? Let me start with a very good uh, way to start, put, put it this way. It was 1991. I, I was with uh, in Spain giving a clinic. And uh, I was young and I was showing everybody how modern tennis was going to be playing very close to the line, taking time away from the opponent, no backing up. And basically I showed all the drills, you know, returning aggressive tennis, playing on top of the line, aggressive tennis, no backing up. I thought I did a fantastic job. I mean, the crowd was clapping. I came out of the stands thinking, man, I, I, I did it. Well, the one that followed was Pato Alvarez. 
and Pato at the time was the best coach in the world. And he goes up there and he goes, Gabe, he's going to be a good coach, but he still has a lot to learn. He's a rookie. He thinks that tennis can be played that way, and there's no way tennis can be played that way, not even on hard courts. You have to back up, because remember the drills in the Spanish drills were basically up, down, move back, move forward. My drills were forward, forward. So after he said that, that was it. I was crushed. He's like, nobody talked to me anymore. This guy's the rookie. You know, he has a long way to go. But the French Open was a month later. This is 1991. So Agassi and Courier in the finals playing that aggressive type of game. And at the same time, Monica Salas in the finals of the, of the girls killing everybody playing that aggressive type of game, which I call it, it was the modern tennis. So those type of stories, when you look back and you go, because I never, I never went back thinking he's right, I'm wrong. I always thought, I know I'm right. And I know this is the way to play tennis. I know this is the future of tennis. So he did a lot, you know, for my career. But, but I have another story, another good story, if, if you have time. Another Absolutely. good story is, is we are in, uh, in Japan and uh, the Morita Foundation will hire me every year to go and scout one player. So when I went to Japan, I was looking for one player that I was supposed to bring to the academy to train. And they were, uh, they were supporting the player for the next eight years. I look at this kid and he was Kei Shikori. He was not that tall, but he was very fast. Beautiful forehand, beautiful backhand, horrible serve. And he was number three. There were other guys that were better. Fumi and Genki were number one and number two. So in the coaches meeting at the end, when they asked me which player I was going to take, I told them Nishikori. And then in Japanese, they started talking with each other for 15 minutes. I didn't know what was going on, but they were going back and forth. And they were saying, no, this guy has never won anything. You know, the other guys have already a proven record. They are very good players. I think we should give the opportunity to one of them. And they kept going back to me and I kept saying, I take Nishikori. And I tried to explain to them that when I look for talent, I'm always looking for two things. First, that the player has to have the weapons. If the player doesn't have the power on the stroke, power is something we cannot teach. The player has the power or he doesn't have the power. So I told him he has more power than the other two and it's something you cannot teach. But the most important thing for me was that he played without fear. When it was a two-day event, but on the last day I put him to play around Robin, you know, match points. And there were a lot of people watching. It was the Olympic Committee. It was the, uh, the, the association. It was the, the captain of the Davis Cup team, the captain of the Fed team. I mean, everybody that was somebody in Japan standing was there. And the parents were not allowed. Their coaches were not allowed either. I mean, these, these players were playing on their own. And Nishikori playing those points, I mean, he went for his shots. He didn't care if he, the ball went in or out. I mean, he was playing some aggressive tennis. And I said, that's the reason I'm taking him. So there it goes against the, the conversations in Japanese, back and forth, back and forth. Again, I went for one player, so they gave me the three of them. 
<laughs> I guess they didn't trust my judgment. And I said, well, we'll give you the three. I said, okay, I'll take the three. But the one who ended up making it was, was Nishikori. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between the talent and potential. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, 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 is a big difference. And most people don't understand, you know, the difference. And I was able at that time to say, you know, this is the player that I take. So that's one of the, the, the good stories. Mm, I love that. I love it. What about on the flip side? Could you share with us a coaching moment that didn't go well? And what? Oh, many. Many. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, many. I was at an ATP tournament in, in the United States. I was in Cincinnati. And one player asked me if, we could, if I could warm him up. He wasn't my player. He was just one of the players. And I said, sure, I started warming him up. And he asked me if I wanted to play a few points. And I started winning the points. So he goes, let's play a set. And I said, okay, let's play a set. And at that time, I was playing a little decent, but I never realized, and I never cared to bother to know that he was going through a very difficult time mentally, that he was going, he was going in a very difficult part of his tennis career. But I was so young that I didn't care even to bother to think about it. You know, so in the next score was Ion uh, Tiriak. You know, he was with Guillermo Villas. They were playing at the time. Tiriak was the best coach in the world. So uh, in one of those changeovers, he calls me and he goes, who are you? And I was very proud. I said, I'm Gabe. And I stand in my, my hand to shake hands. And he goes, he didn't even shake my hand. He looked at me and he goes, are you a player or are you a coach? And I say, I'm a coach. You call yourself a coach? You see what you're doing out there? You see all those people outside? And he pointed at me to all those people outside. All those people paid the tickets to come and watch him play. They didn't come to watch you play. They came to watch him play. And here you are destroying his confidence. He's going to go in that match because you're warming him up. He's going to go in that match. He's going to lose. And it's on you. And then players, I mean, coaches like you, they don't deserve to be in the circuit. You know, and, and he was like, very animate about it because and i hope i hope you continue with this profession that you learn from this experience and i did he went to the match sure enough you know he was hungry gildemeister he went in the match and lost the match and i felt so bad but it's something that helped me that moment really helped me for my entire career because mm-hmm. all along what he told me is we are in the business of building confidence that's what we are we build confidence that's that's our main objective as coaches in a very tough way you know he told me a very a very good lesson and another bad experience that i i like i like another bad experience that i, I think i learned probably one of my be- best experiences same thing i was taking jimmy arias to a tournament he was already top eight in the world we we're playing again another big tournament atp Brad Gilbert used to be one of my students. So we're having breakfast and Brad comes and sees him, asks me, hey, can, can I see with you guys? And I said, sure, come on, Brad, sit down. So he starts talking to Jimmy and he tells Jimmy, Jimmy, you're playing really well. You're number eight in the world. Jimmy, if you can improve, you, you serve, you know, and Jimmy goes, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you only serve wide and everybody knows you're going to go wide with the first serve. But if you learn to mix it up, you know, that's going to help you game a lot. And at the same time, 
when we approach on your back inside, you only can pass down the line. And everybody knows that, so everybody calls it down the line. So you learn also to press with more spin, angle shots, you'll be number one in the world. So we got to play the match. Uh -oh. And here comes Jimmy, man. Jimmy trying to serve, serves that he didn't have, trying to pass cross court with a shot that he didn't have. Basically, he beat him one match before he had to meet him. He, they were supposed to meet the match after. He beat him, he beat him one match before. Mm -hmm. So I learned my lesson. And from then on, I never let anybody sit on the table with us. I, 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 it was the, the hotel for the tournament. I stayed somewhere else. Uh, at the beginning, when I started in the tour, people were very, uh, they didn't like me because I was very mean. Because I knew that if, if they told the player, you have a great forehand. If he went in the match and missed two forehands, oh my gosh, I can't play today. Or if they told him, hey, I can uh, help you forehand, then people think that these players, even though they are the best in the world, that they are very, very confident and they are not. These players are always in the borderline that or they play really well with the confidence when they can go the other, the other way. And our job also as coaches, which I learned from that point forward is, is we have to protect the players. So I never let anybody see with our players. I never let anybody say a word to, our, to, to one of my players. And it wasn't because I was being mean or I was being arrogant. It's because I knew, because that experience that, Brad gave me the opportunity to learn early in my career, you know, that, you know, that that's what happens when, when you don't pay attention to, to the very little, sometimes people think it's insignificant and, and they play a huge part when it comes to results. What fantastic lessons for all of us in that. I remember even just growing up playing tennis myself, I always used to play with this older lady and it was a great training ground because she you know even in practice I'd win the first set 6-4 and she she'd say oh we'd be having a drink on the change of ends and she goes I'm not going to give you a head start in this set and the next <laughs> thing you know I'd be 4-1 down in the next set <laughs> thinking about the head start did I have a head start I can't even remember in the last set it's amazing <laughs> what a little comment can do to flip a match um, but just you know also in the workplace isn't it not just on the sporting field one little comment that a coach can make that can really affect the mindset of, of our uh, team members. So thank you for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that. The next question is our sliding doors question. So, you know, when your life is heading one way and, and something or someone, I'm, I'm sure Gabe, you've had many, you, you feature in my up and coming book because you played a, a sliding doors role in my life for welcoming um, when you're in charge of the, the Nick Boletary Tennis Academy. So I'm so grateful for that. But is there one or two sliding doors moments that you could share with us? Well, I think when I was young, I never expected to be a, really a tennis coach. You know, I always was dreaming. My father was a high executive, so I always thought I was going to follow his footsteps. My mom, in, on the other side, she was a she was an Olympic swimming coach. So when I was 15, she didn't want to go by herself. And she asked me, hey, why don't we go together? And I said, let's go. And then we went to this very big event with the best coaches in the world where they were presenting. And they were presenting that basically it was all about coaching, what it was coaching, what's coaching about, what, what the responsibilities, et cetera. 
And the more I got into it, the more I thought, this is beautiful. This is really, really something that I may want to do, you know, some, one day. And one of the lessons that I learned from, from that event was every coach that spoke, they were talking about my player, my athlete, my student. All of them were mine, mine. So I asked my mother, I said, I don't understand why everybody talks about mine. I didn't like it. He said, it's very possessive. Why are they taking that, you know, like possessive that the players belong to them? And my mother, like a typical coach, told me, a very good question. So go around the booths, you know, talk to the coaches that, that are in the booths, ask them the question. You ask them yourself and, and find out what the answer is. And the more I talk to them, the more I find out that it really, when you begin to be a coach and when you are a real coach, they belong to you. You really feel that they are your students. And when I started coaching, that's one, one of the things that I always kept in my mind. If you think about, oh, a Sherapova, oh, an Ishikori, oh, an Agassi. I mean, they were with, with me from, you know, easily eight, nine years in a row where we work every day, you know, four or five hours a day. I spend more time with them than I spend with, with my own children. You know, and, and that's when you realize why they are mine. You know, that, that's when you realize that well, when you go and sit on the stadium and, and people see us sitting on the stadium and you look at the pictures, we see, you seem very calm, we seem very, you know, in, peaceful and, and, and collected and, and inside we're, we're dying. In, inside is, is we're having a big struggle and I bet you the people that are very religious are praying to every saint they know and, and, and the people that are no and sending promises and because it's, it's become, it becomes personal at that time. Really, I want to be uh, an executive. I, I want to be a coach. I want to be training these, these players. I, I, I think it's in me. What's that one question that you love to ask of those, of, of others? I would like to ask you the question. What is your dream? No, you go. No, no. Where do you want to be years from now? No, no. What is your dream? Mm-hmm. What do you love more than anything in the world? Do you are willing to do whatever it takes mm. to achieve that dream? Because I really believe, I really believe in the power of the dream. And, you know, it's something that we don't often uh, declare. It's something that I think a lot of people don't dare to dream. Why do you think that is? I don't know, but to me, the first thing I ask the the athletes when they come to the academy the first time I, the coaches that work for me is, is I ask them what is the dream I talk about a dream when I ask about a dream I'm expecting a big dream not a little dream something big now all those guys that I trained before if, if I think about Agassi or if I think about Nishikori if I, Monica Sellers every time I ask them about the dream they always told me number one in the world but but it was it was already a declaration of purpose. It was already something that they already saw done. It was something that in their minds, you know, they already had accomplished it. So declaration of purpose. Well, I love that. I love that. And of course, our guiding question I've left for last today, which is in one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? Here, I'm going to go all over the place, I think. Uh, the, the first step to being a good coach is to understand that the success of the athlete 
it's about you and, and all the commitment that you're going to have. But at the same time, it's not at all about you. Mm. Basically, it's about them. It's not about us. So in a, lot of time, in a lot of ways, it's not about being a perfect coach, but about being the best possible coach for that athlete at that particular moment. So a coach's responsibility is, is to guide the athlete to find the lessons within themselves, encouraging self-discovery rather than blindly following orders, because I think it's an, it's an inquiry, uh, thinking to extract, inspect, and underline assumptions and ideas. Like, like, for example, every time we finish a practice, the first thing I ask the, the players, what do you learn? If they finish a match, what do you learn? What can you do better? We're always asking questions. Was that the right shot? Why? So basically, we don't tell the students what to do. What we do is we suggest how to do it. Now, if we're going to divide it up in, into words, and, and you know, I can say, for example, that, that it, to me, knowledge and wisdom have to be together because you have to have the knowledge. Uh, but at the same time, you have to have the wisdom. You know, the knowledge, yeah, knowledge is, is something that we have to be able to apply. And if we don't have the wisdom, we won't be able to apply that knowledge. For example, I need to know my player. I need to know if he likes high intensity, low volume, or the opposite. I need to know what makes him tick. Uh, and then I, to me, that, that's part of wisdom. We need to figure out who do we have in front? What is he trying to accomplish? How can we really tap into his uh, well-being for him to really, really excel? The part that has helped me the most as a coach is planning because we are builders. We, are, we as coaches, we are builders. And you cannot build anything without a plan. And I, what, I, what I see a lot in coaching is that, is that they don't plan. The plan is, is very important. If you don't have a plan, you especially you don't have a plan in writing, and you're able to follow that plan, and, and you are able to, to work on that plan, and you have to be able to know when to ratchet up or when to slow it down and when to play with it, the coaches have to have a discipline when we talk about values, they, they, they have, in, in, that, in that same segment, they have to sacrifice because if, if we admire people that we admire, we usually admire them because they are fighters, because they never give up in, 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 any, in anything in life. So that, that's part of coaching. Coaches have to have, in a way, those, those three things that are important. And the last thing that to me is crucial to be a, a good coach is you have to have the passion. You have to love it. Because as coaches, we really live it. We really live it in every cell of our bodies. In every cell of our bodies, I mean, we live it. We work 24-7. We put our students ahead of our families. We put our students ahead of everything else. But to be able to do that, you have to love what you do. Mm. Without that love, without that passion, is impossible to succeed in anything you do. So... Gabe, how do, as coaches, how do we find the balance? It is very difficult to find balance. Mm. And to tell the truth, you know, most of the best coaches in the world that I know, you know, we're not very balanced. You know, we, we put a lot to, towards the coaching to our students, to our, our projects. And then sometimes we leave the family on the side thinking that they're going to come out okay on their own. And uh, a lot of times it doesn't work that way. 
a little bit of planning maybe <laughs> to, well you have to otherwise you, you become burnt out too don't you you have to you have to find some sort of balance otherwise it's not sustainable isn't it I believe a lot in planning. I believe a lot in schedule. I believe a lot in maximizing uh, the time. And that's one of the things that we teach our students a lot because their schedules are so tight that one of the first things they need to learn is, is time management. But when it comes to coaching, it really goes out the window because you, you know, I'll tell you stories like 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, I have the kids in the car, my ex-wife ready to go to the beach, everything ready, everybody excited. And then Agassi calls, you know, Agassi was only 14 years old. He wasn't number one in the world. He was a junior. Gabe, I play horrible this week. I cannot feel the ball. I feel horrible, man. Could you please help me? So I tell my ex-wife, okay, you guys go to the beach. I'm going to train with Agassi a couple of hours. I'll meet you at the beach. You always put the students first because that's, that's going to happen. Or sometimes they're going to call you, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. I feel very bad. I just have an argument with my father or I had an argument with my mother. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I've... And you become everything for these students at that time. And they mean so much to you that you're willing to drop everything and go and help them in whatever, you know, they need. Mm. But all the coaches that I know, all the best coaches in the world that I know. So speaking of the best coaches that you've come across, like where did you get, where did you get your knowledge from and, and your wisdom? Like who are some of the people that have impacted your coaching career? Uh, I think all coaches. We never stop learning. Mm. We are, in a way, also champions. We're always competing. We never stop competing. Any coach that is decent, any coach that really thinks well or they've done a good job, we know that our, our job is not over. So we're always trying to learn a different approach and that they're always coming with new concepts. So I'm always trying to learn. Books, I think I, I read them all. You know, uh, Conferences I've gone through a, a lot and always with the idea of having an open mind and learning and not so much from one specific coach or another specific coach, but trying to learn from, from a lot of them. You know, if, if I look at, uh, to me, American football is, is, is a sport that spend millions of dollars trying to get better. They spend millions of dollars, you know, scientifically learning, swimming. Swimming is way, way, way ahead of, of tennis, way ahead, because it's an Olympic sport. Uh, for example, when Marcelo Rios was training with us, the Olympic Federation or Olympic Committee from Chile was sending their, their staff, the medical staff, to do blood counts, to do, they, they're very, very far ahead. So every time we can learn from one of those institutions that are ahead of us, you know, it's a good way for us to keep improving, to keep getting better. And to keep innovating, because I think one of the most important things as a coach is, is to innovate, mm -hmm. because whatever worked yesterday, it doesn't mean that it works today. Mm. So we always we're always innovating. I mean, speaking of innovating, social media, um, everyone, please just note Tennis on Demand YouTube channel has over 10 million uh, viewers. Uh, Gabe's Facebook has over 107,000, Instagram over 65,000 followers. So you've got this audience, Gabe. You know, how do you know what message you want to share to the world? Like, how do you, you've got all these followers. How do you, you know, know what it is that you want to give to the world, to your followers? One thing that you said that to me, may, 
is very important is to give back. Mm. I always say that tennis and the sport has given me a lot. And I'm always trying to give back. I give a lot of clinics. I give, for example, the, uh, from February to now, I've given the 42 webinars. And these webinars are for parents. And basically to help them with uh, uh, their sons or daughters, sometimes they, they had the best intentions to help their children and they don't know how. So my goal, I don't charge for the webinars. I'm not doing them for free, but it's to give always something back to the sport. So same thing with the, with the Instagram. The Instagram, for example, you know, I'm, I'm becoming an influencer because whatever I put, it has 130,000 people, 60,000 post by post. So, but what I'm always trying to, to show the people is the drills that they could benefit from. Drills that are uh, not only easy for them to do, but they're very effective. And now going back to, to this part, for example, I know that uh, I was listening to Tony Nadal in one of the podcasts that he was saying that the worst thing that could happen to a sport was the social media. And I'm thinking it's just the opposite because social media is the present and it's the future. And you will learn how to use it correctly. If our students learn how to use it correctly, everybody can benefit from it. I know there's a lot of information out there, some good, some, so, so, some. But ideally, it will be that the coaches that are working with the students or the parents can help those players and guide them to, to show them it, you know, what parts or what areas could be beneficial for them. But I really believe that the social media is something that we need to teach our, our, our children from the very early age how to use it too, how to use it properly. How to have making sure that everything they post it has a consequence, making sure that they understand the responsibility of it. Because like it or not, it is here and it's here to stay. What tennis player comes to mind who you worked with in their developmental years uh, and something they taught you? You know how we yes, we teach our players, but often they're teaching us just as much about a life lesson or or something along those lines. Is there is there someone that comes to mind or a story you could share about a lesson that you learned from one of your players? But I have so, I have so many stories. Yeah. You know, and then good stories. For example, Legacy uh, at 13, we're doing a simple drill, cross-court drill, keep the ball in play, you know, trying to get ball tolerance, no mistakes, deep, heavy. But Legacy, two or three balls and the fourth ball, boom, down the line. You know, so I go to him and I say, Andrew, that's not what we're trying to do. You know, the, the drill is to get the ball cross court. He goes, that's not the way I'm connected. If that ball is going to be short, I'm going to put the ball away. So then he told me that for him to do the drill, I had to change it. I had to make it more engaging. He used to tell me all the time, you know, the only way he concentrated well was I had to push him every time more. So we put a box in the back. Every ball that hit inside was plus one, outside the ball was minus one. And he always was trying to beat, you know, the amount of balls and, and, the, and the space more reduced. But that's the way he trained. So he trained in a very different way. He, his his uh, workouts were uh, a little shorter than Sampras, for example. Uh, but at the same time, his way of thinking was different than Sampras. Sampras, it was more about repetition. Repetition, 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 because he said, once I get the repetition down, I do have to think in a match. I'm going to play automatically and I'm going to make better decisions. 
two players from the same academy, but completely different way of thinking. But they were very, very good about telling you how they felt, telling you this is the way I train, this is the way I think, this is the way I perform better. So we always learn from them. You know, Monica Sellers with the repetition. Uh, nobody did more repetition than Monica Sellers. By far, the most talented player I ever trained in my life was Monica Sellers. But also, I never trained anybody so disciplined. I mean, she was able to hit the same ball over and over and over and over again without having one little time that her mind went off for a second. Everything was about quality, concentration, focus. So we all learn from those players. And what the good thing is, because I was able to train those players at that stage, I know what to expect from the players that I have today. I know if I have a player that everything is, yes, sir, yes, sir, okay, yes, sir, I know that uh, they don't have what they take. Because all those players that they were young, I mean, these, these kids were 13, 12, and they were already telling me what to do. You know, at very early age, they were basically, I had to, I had to negotiate with them. The practice, it was a negotiation process. It wasn't like, it's my way or the highway. It was a negotiation process. And that started at a very early age with these students that were not only talented, but they had the potential. Mm -hmm. So today, when I look at the students that, Everything you tell them, they say yes, yes, but they don't. They, they, they don't want to negotiate with you. You, uh, you know, maybe the potential is not there. So, so when you said earlier, not many people understand the difference between talent and potential. That story highlights what you, I think, what you meant. But can you just expand a little bit more so everyone's super clear on, on what is the difference? Well, the talent is when we look at talent, it's very easy to look at a talented player. First, we look at the physical abilities. Is he tall? Is he strong? Is he fast? Is he agile? You know, how he moves. All those are physical abilities that even for an untrained eye, they're very easy to spot. The, the, the second is the cognitive skills. Do, do they see the court? Do they see the spaces? Can they anticipate? Can they read what the opponent is doing? All those are cognitive skills that most uh, players at an early age are able to do that. But when it comes to potential, it's very different. The best way to, to, to do it is with a story. Okay, Maria Sharapova comes to the academy. She's nine years old. I didn't know Maria. She shows up nine years old and she goes, Gabe, okay, what is my objective for today? And I go, Maria, I've never seen you play. So I need to see you play a little bit first before we can set up objectives. Okay, she started playing. Okay, so what's my objective? And I say, okay, I need to see you play under pressure. And I want to see you play a match. Under pressure, because under pressure is going to really see what your forte and your weaknesses are. So let me, so I'm going to give you one week to get ready because you're not used to the, you just arrived last night from Russia. I'll give you one week. No, no, no. Give me the player right now. I, I want to play right now. You know, so I need to go to amplify that story. Okay, I got the player. So I'm very good player. So I brought people also to put pressure on her. I brought, I brought more kids, a new student. You got to check it out. But just to put pressure on her. But she became the center of attention. Every point she wants, she was going, come on. Every point she wants, she would look at me and she go, let's go. And I go, you see, they're very extroverted. You know, that age, they're very extroverted. And everything is, is, is around them. A few days later, I tell her, okay, you're going to play with Clay Vanova, you know, but you're going to be the sparring partner because she's older than you. She has a good ranking. You're going to be the sparring partner. She looks at me and she goes, I'm not coming all the way from Russia 
to be a sparring partner of anybody. And I'm talking to a nine-year-old. So so that shows you right away, you know, also not only the way they are are constructed inside, the way they're built inside, they're different. And if I tell you stories about Agassi, was the same. If I tell you stories about Sampras, was the same. You know, all of them, all of them were the same, the way they thought about themselves. And it is, when you look at it or try to establish potential, that's, that's when you know, hey, this kid has the ability. Mm. He has, you know, he has the skills, he has the talents, but he also has the potential. Because potential also is, is uh, you know, spirit of sacrifice. Are they willing to work as, as, as hard as it takes, as long as it takes? Because all that is also part of it. Yeah. And so, Gabe, what about when you first started coaching? Um, because this concept of uh, student-centered self-discovery, inquiry, asking questions, extracting the ideas out of them, which you're saying, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, you see in these these players that have this potential. Um, were you... When you first started coaching, did that come naturally to you? You know, especially with your mother being a, a, a high-performance swimming coach. So, did that come naturally to you, or did you have to learn that way, that style of coaching? Um, no, I, I think very, it very came. Dear to my heart, this philosophy. No, I think it came. It came along the way because I, I remember I used to go and watch my mother coach also, especially before you know big events, and I remember she was always asking. You know, if they, if they were not sprinting with the right time, she was asking, hey, you know, what's going on? Rather than saying, hey, look at the time. They say, what's going on? You know, are, are you concentrating? Do you think you're giving 100%? Do you think you're giving 100% effort? Do you think you can go a little harder this time? What do you think your time should be on the next one? So she was always trying to get from them, you know, the, the answer that she was looking for. But rather than typical teacher that tells the student, you know, your time is terrible. You got to do this. You got to do that. We always challenge them, what can you do better? How can we do this? And and it's something like you said, you know, it came, I think, a little more natural to me. But I think to me is is, is the key of coaching. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think if more people can hear that message, that's really the purpose of the podcast as well. We're sport and business coaches. And I think sport can learn so much from the business coach and business coach can learn so much from sport. But the common, the through line is this, is that, a part of that philosophy, which is unlocking the learning that lives within the person in front of you. I absolutely love that. So Gabe, listen, uh, we're going to have to wrap things up here. Uh, so you asked about my dream. That's right. I, was gonna, I, was, I wasn't going to let you go. Without... I know. I know. I'm, I've, I've got it done. Don't you worry. Uh, and I, I want to, after I share my dream, I want to uh, ask you where, what's next for you and what your dream is. But I moved to America to become the best speaker that I could in tennis. I wanted to, Australia sometimes can be the tall poppy syndrome and, you know, a small country and, and don't think big and don't dream big. And, and so I loved that about the States. And so moving to the States and speaking in tennis, I realized that my gift is so much more than just tennis. And so being able to be the best speaker that I can on a stage in the States, both in tennis, corporate and sport, that that's my dream. And that's what I'm working hard on every day uh, to work towards that dream. So thank you. You're doing a very good job. Thank you. But you're right. I think the tennis industry is very small. 
Mm -hmm. the, ten, the tennis industry is a very small niche. And I think what you're doing right now, going more into corporations, going more into general coaching, is, is really what, what you should be doing because that's what it takes and that's, they, need, they need this type of uh, information. Yeah, and sometimes it just takes, you know, one sentence from you all those years ago to believe in me uh, and give me that opportunity when I was so nervous. Uh, so, again, total gratitude. This has been an honour. But throwing it back to round off the episode, what about you? What's next for you? What's your dream? I think I have accomplished a lot of my dreams. You know, I wanted, when I became a, a coach, I wanted to be one of the best coaches in the world. I wanted to make sure that I made number ones in the world. I didn't want to make this a top 100 or be a, not to put any of those coaches down. No, no. Yeah, yes, that my dreams were very big. I wanted to be the best, the best. Uh, it's a funny story when it comes to that. You know, I went to Nick the first time and I told him that was my dream to be the best coach in the world. And he told me, you don't have a chance. I'm the best coach in the world. <laughs> so I told him, perfect, baby. I want to learn from you. That's what I'm here to learn from you. But, but anyway, yeah. the, I think what I want to do more in the future is, is I have a few books that I'm writing uh, that I'm ready to be being published. And I think it's a way for me to keep, you know, uh, monitoring spreading the word, you know, trying to make sure that more people understand what it takes to be a coach, what it takes to be a, a parent of a talented player. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's my next, my next dream, my next stage is mm -hmm. to be able to do that and, and also to do some speaking engagements. I would like to do that too with, you know, also with corporations and, uh, you know, and, and there's different engagements. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have a wealth of knowledge. I know there's another a thousand stories that we, did, we didn't get to on this episode, but you never know. I might just have to have you back another day. But thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate you. And thank you for being on the coaching podcast. It has really been a pleasure and it was a lot of fun. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring, and U.S. placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fitness performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four. If you company are interested in sponsoring the Coaching Podcast, reach out to info at Emma Doyle dot com dot au uh, i like um yeah knowledge and wisdom has to be one yep and uh no it's, 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 well i like planning a lot but i don't know where you put it okay you know but uh you know like i said before the perseverance and passion are very are key okay.